There is a controversy that exists in the United States of America, and unless you recently read the New York Times, you may not even be aware of it. An article by a Dan Barry, I feel really hot, I mean, not like attractive, <laughs> just more like loud. Oh, there we go. Now I'm no longer hot or loud. At any rate, Dan Barry writes a series of columns on this land, okay? And what he does is he explores arcane bits of trivia about the United States of America. And the controversy, the controversy is who lays claim to Paul Bunyan? Now, of course, if you're from Bemidji, you know that you have all things Paul Bunyan in Bemidji. The uh, Paul Bunyan Sub Shop, the Paul Bunyan Mini Storage Center, the Paul Bunyan Communications Company, the Paul Bunyan Playhouse, and the Paul Bunyan Mall just off of Paul Bunyan Drive. But if you're from Brainerd, you know you have the only talking Paul Bunyan. And if you ask him where he's from, he'll tell you. So I'm not quite sure exactly who wins in all this. The whole thing of Paul Bunyan starts in the early 1900s, okay, late 1800s, rather, early 1900s, logging camps, tales by the, by the cold campfires and, and, and frigid mornings of, of logging world. And Paul Bunyan has this amazing reputation, right? He, he spoke words in a world that was so cold, his words would literally freeze in the air. He was at least six axe handles tall. Uh, when he would speak, okay, limbs from trees, limbs from trees would just be severed from the trunks. He once sneezed so hard from a pinch of snuff that he cleared all the timber for 11 miles. I think Paul Bunyan was in town earlier this year. And he was a logger who churned the Dakotas, that's what the article says, churned the Dakotas into, it says it right here. And he was so thorough a logger that he turned the Dakotas into prairies. So in 1914, the Red River Lumber Company, okay, which had a sawmill operation in Akeley, began peppering its brochures with Paul Bunyan stories. Some were new, some were old, but none were copyrighted, and that started the whole Paul Bunyan controversy. The Brothers Grimm, Jacob and Wilhelm lived in the late 1700s and early 1800s. You know their fairy tales as well. Cinderella, the Frog Prince, the Goose Girl, Hansel and Gretel, Rapunzel, Rumpelstiltskin, Sleeping Beauty, and Snow White. A connection to campfire stories, a connection to old rumor, a connection to old folklore. We'll get back to that in just a little bit. 1034 is where we find ourselves today. That's the page number of this book. If you're new to Timberwood Church, you could grab one of these. If you want one of these, take one. Take one of these. Take a coffee cup. Make a great companion every morning. Mm. Starting with verse 1. And a great sign. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, where she has a place prepared by God 
in which he is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the devil saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from a serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea, or alternatively, and I stood on the sand of the sea. It kind of sounds a little bit like a fairy tale. It sounds a little bit like folklore. We have some pretty important characters that we need to discuss, right? We have a woman, a child, and a dragon, okay? Now, traditionally, it's been easy for us to think of the woman as Mary. And depending upon your faith tradition, you might have gotten a stronger argument for that, that the, Mar- the woman is Mary. But it's probably not a real woman. It's a sign. It's a symbol, And so, when we have the Bible talking about a woman who appears beautiful, who is clothed with the sun, who is a radiant bride, well, when the Old Testament and New Testament speaks of a woman in those ways, most often it is referring to what or whom? The church, the people of God. In the Old Testament, predominantly the nation of Israel, but not exclusively. In the New Testament, the church, the people of God. I just lost my point. I shouldn't have. The people of God that stay true to who God has asked them to be. And again, predominantly that's ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, but it's not exclusively Israel in the Old Testament. Last week, we made the argument, this idea of there have always been the people of God, the kingdom of God, the individuals who have followed God. We have many great examples of that in the Old Testament and the New Testament of women and men who have followed God, irrespective of their ethnic identity. In fact, the Bible makes plain to say that when it comes to the issue of salvation, issues of race and issues of skin tone and issue of language and issues of ethnicity seem to very quickly die away. It's the people of God whom in the Old Testament hoped for the reality of a Savior and the people of God who in the New Testament spread the word about a Savior 
both groups, the same group, lived by faith. And Revelation uses this imagery of a woman that gives life to a Savior to encompass the totality of the people of God. It is from the woman that the Savior finds life. The woman is the people of God, the church. A child. Who's the child? This one's probably the easiest one. Because really, there's only one person it can be. If we know our Old Testament history, Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, talks about this ruler. It was an early prophecy for Jesus, the male child who will rule the world with an iron scepter. A rod of iron is none other than Jesus Christ. The dragon. Now, it's as easy to identify the dragon as it is to identify the child, because it's in verse 9. It's just right there. It's not even hard. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we have the woman being the people of God. We have the child as Jesus, and we have the dragon as Satan. And what we have described in chapter 12 is a battle. And in some ways, it's a one-chapter summary of the entire Bible. A one-chapter summary of the plan of God. A one-chapter summary of the victory of God. God, the bride, the woman, the child who would be Savior. Satan, fighting, accusing, deceiving, appearing, acting like he can beat God. Seizing his chance. Actually killing the child, because it's shortened here, right? But then we know that innocence is not held captive by death. And the child is not defeated, but rescued. Satan is defeated. Yet Satan still pursues in anger the woman, the people of God. But those people of God are faithful even to a physical death. And Satan has no control over them. He will not win. He may be able to kill. But he cannot destroy the relationship they have with God. Now, there's lots of different places that we could go with this story, but two things that I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. This first idea of no more lies and no more accusation. Inherent in Satan's name is a title of deceiver, of accuser. And frequently we wrestle with real issues in our lives because we have um, allowed ourselves to believe lies or allowed ourselves to be deceived. So Satan's primary activity is Satan saying to God, they're guilty, they should die. Look at the book of Job. The book of Job starts off with Satan telling God, Job only loves you because you're nice to him. If you're no longer nice to him, he he won't love you anymore. He's guilty. Satan says to God, the people are guilty, and you know the penalty for death, God, which God does. The penalty for sin, rather, is death. Satan says to us, to the people of God, to all people, you don't need God. What do you need God for? You can do this thing on your own. Eat the fruit that you want to fruit. Eat. You don't need God. One of the most effective ways that Satan deceives today is whispering into people's ears, you can do it on your own. You can figure this thing out. You don't need God. 
Satan also says to us, you're not worth it. Satan also says, you can't be forgiven. Satan says, you don't have value in God's eyes. Satan says, you're guilty. What is there to love about you? Satan says, we don't need God. What Revelation 12 seems to argue for is that we don't need to believe the lies any longer. We don't need to allow the accusations to persist. Now, a word on this quickly. When I do something wrong, whether anyone else sees it, I know that it's wrong. Okay? And that initial knowing that it's wrong is a gift from God. It's the activity of the Holy Spirit. So, I do something wrong. The Holy Spirit says, John, you idiot. John, you loving child of mine. One of those two. You need to fix this, John. You need to fix this now. And sometimes I go right now and fix it. And I go, please forgive my sin because I screwed up. Please forgive my sin. Sometimes it takes me a little while because I'm like, really, I don't think it was that bad. And the Holy Spirit's like, no, it really was that bad. And I'm like, it's a little tiny thing. But the Holy Spirit says, no, it's a big thing. Okay? That is a gift from God. But a week after that event, I've done the wrong thing. I've asked for forgiveness. I've made it right with people that I've offended. Then if I hear a, do you know you did something wrong? And I'm like, yeah, I know I did something wrong. Do you know that you can't be forgiven? Well, I'm pretty sure I can be forgiven. No, you can't. You can't be forgiven. What you did was a really bad thing. In fact, I don't see how in the world you could be forgiven for the bad stuff that you've done. Now, maybe I'm the only one, but I've had those thoughts. And those thoughts aren't from God. If we've sinned, confessed our sin, and asked for forgiveness for our sin, no longer engaging in that sin, repenting from that sin, walking away from it to God. Then when the little voices come that say that I can't be forgiven, those aren't from God. Those are from the deceiver. Those are from the accuser. To be sure, we listen to all kinds of lies about ourselves. We allow accusations to persist. We allow the devil's influence in our life more than we want. What are the lies that we believe? I don't know. Pick your favorite ones. My spouse doesn't love me, so why should I love her? If I look at this image on a computer screen, it'll make me feel better about my life. If I make just a little bit more money to the exclusion of everything else, then I'll be more successful. 
the way I behaved 10 years ago, well, God could never forgive me for that. The fact that I was wounded and abused, well, God could never heal that. The fact that I'm getting old and forgetful means that I should remove myself from the community of faith. There's all sorts of lies that we believe, folks. And they're not from God. If God's honestly asking you to confess sin, deal with it. But once that's done, cut it loose. Cut it loose. Refuse, refuse to listen to the lies that Satan wants to put in your life. And maybe if you're really theologically in tune, you'd say, well, Satan's a limited entity, so Satan isn't putting the lies into my life. Satan's got bigger fish to fry. I would agree with that. But Satan also has his henchmen, okay? And they work overtime. So let's just take the lies of the evil one and no longer believe them. The chief lie? That we don't need God. The chief lie Satan gives to us, you don't need God. And you live in the second half of a great time. You don't need God. What do you need God for? Or you just need a little bit of God. Because God, you know, Satan will play this game with us, right? He'll, he'll say, okay, if I can't win here, I'll win here. So he'll be like, okay, yeah, show up at church on Sunday morning. That's fine. That's all the God that you need. What are the lies that we believe? And are we willing to take a stand and say, today is the end of believing those lies? No more lies, no more accusations. The second thing I want to look at is in two verses, verse 6 and verse 14. And the woman, okay, so the people of God, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, exact same phrase as we find in, in verse 14. And, and the exact same phrase when we talked about a couple weeks ago, the 42 months and a time, a time, a time and a half, okay? Those are all the same phrase. The translators just translate them slightly different with their own little bent, okay? But this is a period of time three and a half years, 42 months, whatever it might be. This is a time from the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, until the day that Christ returns. So the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God where she is to be nourished. Verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of the great eagle. I just love the imagery here, okay? And the imagery is Old Testament imagery, okay? In the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, okay, God speaks of nation of Israel being put on wings of eagles, okay, and being, being rescued, okay? And so the imagery is alive and well. Given the wings, two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished, for a time and times and half a time. Again, the same phrase as 1,260 days, same phrase as 42 months. This is the same thing that's being repeated over and over and over again, even though it's translated slightly different. Don't get caught there. If you disagree with the analysis that Beale gives us on the 42 months, no problem. Focus on the word nourish. Do you realize how 
important nutrition is. This last week, I was working out with Todd Halls, okay? And on Thursday, it was front squats and bench press day. Now, there's two exercises that I hate. One of them might be front squats. The other one is certainly bench press. I hate the bench press. I hate it more than just about anything else. In fact, thinking of it now just breaks me out into a cold sweat. I hate the bench press. I hate the bench press. I hate the bench press. Give me something that I can do, like run or bike or swim for a couple hours. I'm happy as a clam, okay? Just absolutely happy. Put me on my back where I'm pushing like this. So everyone knows this, okay? I've not been shy about this. I've not been shy about this. Everyone knows that I hate this exercise. And so I'm lifting the weight off. And in the middle of this discussion, in the middle of this exercise, I'm being asked, okay, before I started the exercise, what did I eat that day? And I said that I had um, two eggs over, that was Thursday, two eggs over medium. On Wednesday, I had two eggs over easy. I kind of like the over easy eggs better because they're a little bit like gushier into the toast and stuff. So I put the eggs on top of the toast, cut in, and that yolky goodness goes in there. And, oh, it's amazing, a little salt and pepper. But on Thursday, they were over medium. I cooked them just a little bit too long. And so I said I had two, two eggs over medium on, on dry wheat toast, okay, and a cup of coffee. And so uh, Todd's like, well, what else did you have? And I'm like, well, before I came here, I had some, some energy. So I had a cookie with some peanut butter on it. And then I had a handful of, uh, of those little, you know, those little uh, candy corn things, okay? And a handful of peanuts. And you put them together, and it's like a salted nut roll. It's amazing. It's absolutely breathtaking, okay? And then I had a few peanut M&Ms, because why wouldn't you? You're at Timberwood Church, peanut M&Ms in the office center. And, and so... Uh, so I said, why? How much protein should I have? And he said, well, roughly you should have 0 0.8, 0 0.8, 0 0.8 grams. 0.8 grams? I thought I saw him here. 0.8 grams per body weight. 0.8, right? So basically 0.8 um, grams of protein per times my body weight would have me eating a dozen and a half of eggs every day. So here I am on my back with this discussion taking place, and we've just concluded that I don't have enough protein, enough nutrition on board. And so I lift the weight off, right? And as I'm bringing it down, Todd says to me, you got to go get yourself a chicken. Bam! <laughs> I couldn't move anything. I was so angry okay, in one breath, and just so utterly amused in the next breath, because it was just like, you got to go get yourself a Why would you say that to it? Well, you got to go get yourself a chicken. What, what is that? Lots of protein, obviously. No, I get it now. But have we, are we adequately eating the food necessary to sustain life? Because if we're eating the right nutrition, it makes a huge difference. It makes a gigantic difference. There's an article, did you see it today, in uh, the Star Tribune about, um, um, well, I'll just tell you the names. It was uh, the uh, University of Arizona cross-country runners. They were staying uh, at, uh, at a hotel down in the metro, okay? And they were here for the uh, Roy Griak Invitational. At any rate, two of the runners, one of the runners noticed that their bags looked kind of suspicious and then realized that an individual was running with their, a couple of their bags out the street to rob them, right? Well, If you're a bad guy in Minneapolis, don't steal from a cross-country team and think you're going to outrun them. 
because they got great training and great nutrition, and yet you are not going to, they're not even going to break a sweat. Read the article. It's so funny. You'll hold your side. You'll split your side. The dude's like, I've got a knife. I don't care. Takes off running. We'll run after you. Then he tries to go over this like chain link fence, right? And the guy that was pursuing him was a national level, missed the Olympics by one second, cross country, uh, rather steeplechase expert. Okay, a steeplechase dude going over a fence is no big deal at all. Training, nutrition, everything, everything. It makes the difference. What the text argues for is that there is a place for the church to be nourished, a place for the church to receive proper nutrition. That if you are eating the right food, you will be strong enough to do the exercise. So i got a few questions for you. Have we experienced saying yes to Jesus as our salvation? Have you experienced that? If you haven't experienced that, you can even start right now and say, Jesus, I want you to save me. Second question, have we asked for and experienced the forgiveness of sin so that we are no longer accused? Are we active in conquering the work of Satan because of Jesus and our testimony? That's in the text. Get to it on your own time. Super important. We just didn't have enough time today. Next question, do we realize we will probably suffer? Do we know that the time for Satan is short, but filled with wrath? You want to know why the world is so wound up? Verse 12. Woe to you, heaven and earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. You want to know why we kill each other and hurt each other and shoot each other and war nation against nation? It is verse 12. Right there, there is your answer. Do we know that God has created a place for us to be nourished? Do we know that God has created a place for us to be nourished? Certainly we meet to worship God, without question. That is the primary attitude of the follower of Christ. But when we meet, we are nourished. When we read from His book, we are nourished. When we learn from His book, we are nourished. When we pray to Him, when we allow the cacophony of life to slow down enough so that our soul can be reunited with God, we are nourished. When we recognize our need for a Savior in each and every circumstance that we encounter in life, we are nourished. Chapter 12 argues life is going to be a fight, and it's going to be a long-distance run. And our ability to succeed becomes a matter of nutrition. What you eat, what goes in, and how does it nourish 
How does it nourish you and me? Certainly our bodies, yeah, but we're talking higher than that. We're talking about our minds and our hearts and our souls. It is here that we come face to face with the claims of the Bible. Maybe even in spite of our desire to know how the end will come or what the book of Revelation really means or even how to interpret the book of Revelation. We cannot miss this most important chapter, this most important idea. How our heart, our mind, our stroll, our strength is nourished. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you today simply, plainly. And perhaps we would all agree that we can cry out and say, we need you. Nourish our souls. In Jesus' name. The ushers will come forward and gather the morning offerings, and thank you for your support of Timberwood.